And if you would, turn in your Bibles to the letter of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5. And you can find this reading, if you're using our Pew Bible, you can find this reading on page 1179, 1179, which is 1 Timothy chapter 5. The Apostle Paul teaches us to love the church. In fact, have you ever stopped to realize that much of our New Testament is the spirit-inspired product of that love? Because Paul loved these churches so much, he wrote these letters. To use his own evocative words, both in Philippians and 2 Timothy, Paul became a living sacrifice. He poured himself out as a drink offering on behalf of the church. And you simply cannot read through his many epistles and not recognize his intense devotion to these congregations, to their best interests, often at a cost to himself. What makes this even more striking is that Paul had such a hard time with most of these churches. In fact, he often felt the need to defend his reputation, his office, or even his message. This letter, as you know, is really about the Ephesian church, one of the churches he had heavily invested in. They have been led astray by false elders, men he trusted, men he wept with. And this is not an aberration. Rather, these kinds of struggles can be found in almost all his other epistles, and with few exceptions. And yet nothing seemed to dim his heart's desire for these churches. Now, it would be tempting to think that, well, Paul felt that way. He loved these churches so much simply because he was their father, their founder. And to a degree, that's true. In 1 Corinthians 4, for example, Paul does refer to himself as a kind of father of that church and the gospel. However, I think I need to begin this morning by tracing Paul's love for the church back to something far deeper than his role as founding witness. For the apostle, I don't think it was so much his role in the church that fueled his passion as it was the presence of Christ in the church. Paul believed that Jesus died for the church and at the same time that he married her, he had written this church to say just that, that Jesus in Ephesians had died for his bride. What an image. We cannot imagine, can we, a more dramatic picture a bridegroom so in love, so willing to suffer and die that he would die to spare his beloved bride. This love, this love which began before time is actually what history is about. So much so that Paul tells us in that letter to the Ephesians that even something as mundane, seemingly mundane as human marriage, that even human marriage itself is simply a kind of parable, a way of telling the world about this far more ancient and enduring love. Now, a man who believes things like that, 
believes that Jesus loves the church that way, believes that Jesus is in union with his bride, such a man will become inevitably what we today call a churchman. He must. To love Christ is to love his church. A fully devoted husband will never tolerate a friend who hates his wife, and Christ will not tolerate a man or woman who hates his bride. So Christ, in the end, will not know those, he says. He will not know those who have not loved and served his people. He will say to them at the judgment, I never knew you. Depart from me. Now I realize that loving the church today in our world, in our conduct text, is a big ask. Many of us have been deeply hurt in churches. We've seen corruption, weakness, cover-up, and abuse. I've seen those things too, and they've touched my life as well. But I want to remind myself and you that we have also seen Christ at work in his church. We have seen good and great things. Often, because of the way our minds work, the traumatic sticks and the good slides away in our memory. But we need to attach to some of those good memories and give thanks and remember that Christ loves his church. Now, that being said, to really love the church, we will need Paul's theology. We will need his faith. So let us return to his pastoral epistles, to 1 Timothy 5, reading verses 17 through 25. Please stand if you would, and we'll read God's word. 1 Timothy 5, beginning in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, indeed, we come this morning in the presence of our risen Savior and all the elect angels and the 24 elders, and all the saints and martyrs, we come into heaven through the Holy Spirit that we might receive your word with gladness and be changed. We do not have hearts, Father, to receive it, so we ask that your spirit would open our hearts 
and open my mouth that we might understand your word, apply it and obey it, and be comforted, encouraged, and convicted through it. We do this, Father, resting on your promise given to us through Jesus, that though we cannot live on bread alone, yet we must and can live on this heavenly word. Bless us then now, strengthen us to receive it, in Christ's name, amen. 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 Please be seated. If you've been with us on Sunday morning, you probably know that 1 Timothy was written by Paul to Timothy, who has been sent to Ephesus to sort out a big mess. The church there is suffering from corrupt elders, bad teaching, and new practices. Timothy's mission is to silence and remove the false elders, chapter 1, restore right, proper, dignified worship, chapter 2, set new standards for the election of officers, chapter 3, and above all, to keep himself and his own ministry pure, chapter 4. Paul wants Timothy, and I think this is sown all throughout the books, Paul wants Timothy and all pastors to remember that the biggest threat to a pastor's ministry is never that annoying person who doesn't go along with your agenda or the person who doesn't care for your preaching. Rather, the pastor or elder's own sin is always the greatest danger to his work. I will occasionally remind myself of this. Many times, usually in prayer and in my mind, I've placed my finger in my chest and said, the biggest threat to my ministry is my sin. With that in mind, Paul clearly wants Timothy to act with complete integrity in the way he handles the elders in Ephesus. This is the theme of verses 17 through 25, the section we've been studying together. In that first part, 17 and 18, Timothy is told to honor and even give double honor to the good elders that are still in that church. The people in Ephesus may have been tempted to dismiss all their leaders or to create some kind of new form of government. But even in the face of failure, Paul is concerned that the honor and practice of the office of elder be maintained. Then secondly, in verses 19 through 21, our passage last week, Paul laid out ground rules for the disciplining or judging of the bad elders. They were men in ministry at the church there. There were men in ministry there that needed to be removed, who were unworthy of honor. And if this was the case in the first days of the church, under the care of the apostles, we can be sure that it will be true today for us as well. In light of that, Paul insists that this be done on the basis of real evidence, two or three witnesses, and that the church deal openly and honestly with scandal. Paul ends that little section by invoking the presence of God and commands Timothy in verse 21 to keep all of these rules without partiality of any kind. Now, if you're following this train of thought, Maybe our verses this morning feel almost inevitable. Since elders or eldership is worthy of honor, even double honor, and since their discipline is a terrible 
an often scandalous issue, since even the court of heaven is watching this process, we ought to be very careful, very careful in ordaining men as elders and pastors. The ordination of men to the office of elder is a very serious matter and will require real wisdom and faith and prayer. In our text today, I think Paul's words offer the church in every age three key insights to keep in mind as we ordain pastors, elders, and deacons. First of all, it is appropriate and necessary to use caution when we ordain men into the office of elder. In our text this morning, Paul reminds us that a pinch of prevention is worth a pound of cure, or that a stitch in time saves nine. By the way, if none of that makes sense to you young people, what I mean is that if you do it the right way the first time, you're saving yourself a lot of the trouble later on. So that's the first point. Second, Paul urges us to not forget grace when we think about ministry. It's easy to become legalistic when we are evaluating elders in the church. And then lastly, thirdly, in the ordination of elders, we always need faith. We cannot remove all the risk. We have to trust God to bring the truth out and preserve his church. So first of all, notice with me this morning the caution that Paul encourages in verse 22. He writes, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. On the surface, this verse is fairly straightforward. Don't rush the process. Don't rush to ordain men. Be cautious. Now that may sound obvious, but in reality, it's a great temptation that many churches face. It's one our church has faced. Many of us who have been believers for any length of time, we've, we've found ourselves in this situation maybe more than once. Maybe our church was low on leaders, and suddenly a bright, capable, passionate, successful man joins the church. Maybe he's good with money, and the church really needs that right now. In desperate need of leadership, the process then is rushed, and the man is given great authority very quickly. Timothy was probably facing that very situation. Numerous elders in Ephesus had probably left the church already. Others were being disciplined out of their office. There was real need for workers and leaders. A vacuum had formed in Ephesus. Nevertheless, Timothy is not to be hasty to ordain or lay hands on anyone. But please don't miss this. The command for caution here is not unique. This is not the first time Paul has told us this. This is part of a bigger model that Paul has been advocating for all through this letter. For example, remember in chapter 3, he told Timothy that a deacon or elder, quote, must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. One of the most unloving and foolish things churches do is to take a new believer, an immature believer, and give them leadership. It's cruel to that person and it's terrible for that church. 
In that same chapter, chapter 3, Paul goes on to encourage Timothy to test candidates for the diaconate. Because of the unique work of our deacons, it's possible with them, more so than with the elders, to, to some degree at least, test their work, to give them tasks, to sort of try them out. And he says that in chapter 3. Or think about Paul's treatment of the widows at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 5. In those verses, Paul urges the church not to enroll widows, that is, not to make the church responsible for their whole care for the rest of their life until they are at least 60, and only if they have shown over a long period of time that they are faithful and godly women. My point here is that prayerful caution is the overall strategy of this book when it comes to appointing anyone to anything in the body of Christ. Paul says, do not be hasty to lay on hands and appoint elders. Don't be hasty in enrolling widows. Don't be hasty in electing deacons. Don't rush new converts into action. Now, I know that's un-American, but we cannot rush these things. Real caution is needed. Now, to bring home the seriousness of that, to really drive home the seriousness of that, Paul adds here a difficult warning. There is a danger, he says in verse 22, that in rushing the process, Timothy will be implicated in some way in the sins of those elders. Look again at verse 22. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others, keep yourself pure. Now to understand Paul's point, you have to understand ordination or the laying on of hands. If you don't understand what it means, if you don't understand what it means to lay hands on someone, you won't understand why Paul worries that Timothy's purity is at stake. In the New Testament, the laying on of hands has two different meanings. In some cases, laying on of hands conveys or transfers a gift to someone. So, for example, the apostles, men like Paul, could lay hands on people, pray for them, they would be healed, or they would receive the Holy Spirit. Sometimes that same method would bring some kind of blessing. Jesus laid his hands on infants in the Gospels and blessed them. However, as wonderful as that is, I don't think that that is what is happening in this text, what Paul's talking about here. Here he means the second way of laying on hands. As Reformed Christians, uh, people of the Reformation, we do not believe that the ordination of an officer conveys a sacramental gift, a divine power transmitted literally through the hands of a bishop. Rather, we think this is the second use of laying on of hands. We see it in the Old Testament and New Testament. Hands could be laid on someone simply as a solemn authorization of that person for public ministry in God's church. And that really is the dominant use of the idea in the Bible. For example, in Acts 13, a group of elders lay hands on Paul and Barnabas in order to send them to the Gentiles with the gospel. At this point, Paul already has the spirit. He's already an apostle. He's already incredibly gifted. This is not a priestly act. It's not a priestly act that conveys a sacrament. 
Rather, the laying on of hands by those elders is a solemn act of, act of recognition by those elders that Paul and Barnabas are set apart for this work. And we could give lots of other examples from the New Testament. The point is this. The hands being laid represented that those elders have given their blessing and that in some sense, these newly ordained men are sharing in the ministry, joined with them in ministry. Therefore, in laying hands on these men, in ordaining elders, Timothy is validating those men's ministries. He is declaring that man above reproach. And he is giving his official support. He's sharing in the ministry with them. So Paul is concerned in this verse that Timothy will rush the process of ordination, that he'll be too quick to lay his hands on men in the church and appoint them as elders. If Timothy does that, he risks being partly responsible for their sin. Now, as we'll see in just a moment, we'll get there in a second. Timothy can't know for sure. Our elders can't know for sure. Paul himself, remember, Paul himself laid hands on and ordained men who later fell away. The point here is simply that if Timothy is not doing due process, if he's not using proper caution, then he will share in some sense in the guilt of what happens next. A passage of scripture that I think really clear, clarifies this for us is 2 John verse 11. John writes, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that is the apostolic faith, do not receive him in your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, John is not saying that you can't have unbelievers in your house. You should have unbelievers in your house especially to dinner. It's a great way to evangelize. What John is saying, he's talking about taking a false elder, a false teacher in the church and giving them hospitality, especially in a culture where bringing someone into your house meant that you were receiving them and their teaching. You were validating them. You were saying, yes, I'm behind. I support this person. And so Paul and John are very concerned about that reality in the church. Now, brothers and sisters, uh, this is a serious verse for our church. It's a serious thing to be implicated in the sins of another person, especially someone who may do massive damage to the church from a position of leadership. If we're going to take this verse seriously, we have to embrace godly caution in saying that, though, I don't want you to leave here this morning thinking that I'm calling you to paranoia or fearful hesitancy, or that I'm urging us to just trust our processes, our exams, our education, everything we put pastors and elders through, or even our intuition, our just sense of, I don't like the way he looks. We can't trust any of those things ultimately, and I don't think that's what Paul wants. What he is calling for, though, is a kind of caution that comes from faith. A caution that allows us to wait patiently for the Lord. A caution that is born of trust. A trust that if we surrender our will and our timeline, he will make it clear. Alongside that word of caution, notice also with me that Paul gives a word of grace 
in verse 23. He writes, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Some of your Bibles may have a parenthesis around that verse. The translators are just letting you know that this seems to be a bit of a break in Paul's thought. However, those markings are not there in the original Greek. And although I'm sure the translators meant well and they had good intentions, I hope you agree with me that it is better to leave out their scribal additions. More importantly, I don't like the parentheses because it suggests somehow that this verse has little to do with the verses around it. And that's just not the case. Verse 23 was written by the Spirit of God speaking through Paul with the express purpose of balancing what we just read in verse 22. In verse 22, Paul is calling for holiness, seriousness, caution in a very powerful way. Paul knows that Timothy has a very sensitive conscience. That Timothy needs to hear not just words about the seriousness of being an elder, but he also needs to hear about God's grace, love, and mercy to him. Timothy, it seems, has already separated himself from alcohol as a way of remaining pure and a way of ensuring that his mind is always fit for action. And that is not altogether wrong. Remember, Paul will tell him later in 2 Timothy that he is, quote, to preach the word and be ready in season and out of season. In light of the seriousness and urgency of his calling and the huge spiritual warfare that's going on in Ephesus, Timothy has chosen abstinence. Again, in and of itself, this is not a problem. The Nazarite vow in the Old Testament commanded that some men who are dedicated to, to full-time ministry especially should abstain. John the Baptist, you might recall, was one of these men. Such men would have had wine only at the Passover or in a religious setting. Otherwise, they would have refrained. That being said, Jesus and the apostles did not practice this abstinence. Jesus began his ministry by creating wine, and he was even falsely accused of being a drinker by his enemies. Legalistic Jews tried to shame Jesus and the apostles for not being holy enough because they did not abstain. So the scriptures do not condemn Jesus or the apostles for drinking in moderation, and they also do not condemn thoughtful abstinence. I know this can be a difficult topic for a few people still today. I've known men who voluntarily abstained as ministers of the gospel, and we should respect that so long as they do not force it on others. We also should respect those who have a past in alcoholism and need to live in abstinence. This glorifies God. For myself, full disclosure, I've chosen to exercise what might be called extreme caution because of my office. But this does not mean that I am holier than thou. The standard of God's word is the standard, and that standard is clear. Wine is good. Drunkenness is evil. Whenever we consider fasting or abstinence, which can be good, both of which can be good, 
We also need to remember Paul's warning, his criticism in this letter of the false teachers. In 1 Timothy 4, he says that the false teachers, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. Timothy's abstinence was not the product of false theology. He was not following the Ephesian false teachers. Timothy had probably chosen this path of abstinence long before he ever came to Ephesus. If Timothy was going to do this to earn God's favor or impose some kind of legalistic standard on others, Paul would have jumped all over that. In fact, Paul repeatedly jumps all over that. Colossians 2.18, he writes emphatically, quote, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Paul would have spoken out if he thought his spiritual son was involved in that kind of false teaching. So Timothy was not engaged in some kind of works righteousness. However, however, don't miss this. There was a problem. There was a problem. In fact, a fairly significant problem and one that relates to the ordination of elders and one that almost all elders at one point will deal with. Timothy's abstinence, though well intended, was hurting him. He was unintentionally harming himself in order to better minister to others. Of course, that is not what he meant to do. But in seeking to be the perfect minister, he was really harming his own body. And so Paul offers here a word of grace. He says, Timothy, you have frequent ailments, brother. Your body and your constitution are not strong. You cannot keep pushing yourself in this way. You need to use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. Coming from Paul, this little verse must have meant so much. So take it out of the parentheses. It means so much coming from Paul. More than anyone else, Paul was willing to be all things to all people. He was willing to make every sacrifice to better reach people. Paul reminds the Corinthians that he refused an income. He even refused to be married in order to remove all doubts about his motives in preaching the gospel. He was willing to give up meat. He was willing to give up drink or whatever he could refrain from to help others. He believed, Paul believed more than anyone in making real profound sacrifices in order to do ministry. He gave up rights. He gave up liberties and conveniences. But listen, in this little vital verse, he says no to self-harm in the name of ministry. If you know church history, you know this verse was lost. It was put in parentheses for a long time. Sadly, in the Middle Ages, especially in the Middle Ages, men and women came to believe that by abusing their body, they could please God. Monks would literally whip themselves, opening up wounds in their body to please God. This verse exposes the lie in all of that. In ordaining elders and evaluating elders, 
we must leave room for them to be real people, to rest, to struggle, to need medicine, to need breaks, to need sleep. Timothy's example should warn us against ignoring grace and mercy when we speak about these things. I think this one verse can also open up to us a very important moment of grace and how we view pastors and elders. And I would add parents and many other people fall into this. Some of us, especially if we're in a large church, we're viewed, are viewed at a distance. That's what the celebrity pastors are today, viewed at a distance. That man becomes untouchable and seemingly ideal in every way. So many celebrity pastors, even those in our reform tradition, are not really seen as men with all the problems of men. You don't know them, and that's part of the attraction. They preach grace without seeming to need it, or at least not really. However, when you get close, when you get to know their wife, when you first see them lose their temper a little bit with their kid, when you learn about their embarrassing medical condition, then and only then do they become real. Well, in this verse, Timothy here is made real for us. And what we see is the grace and mercy and patience that is needed even for a profoundly gifted leader. And that really brings us to our last point. We've used caution, but also grace in our assessment of our leaders. Now, lastly, we must use faith. We must use faith. We should take every precaution, but ultimately, only time will tell. Only time will tell. Like Frodo's ring in the Lord of the Rings, a man's ministry, especially I'm thinking here of a pastor's ministry, but it could be true of elders, deacons, even of parents. A pastor's ministry, though especially, is only revealed when it's thrown into the fire of time, as Paul teaches us in the book of Corinthians. And so we must delay the final judgment of that officer to the time of Christ's return. Listen to what Paul writes in verses 24 and 25. The sins of some people are conspicuous, obvious, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are obvious, and even those that are not can remain, cannot remain hidden. Some of those Timothy will deal with, some we see today will clearly be false elders, false pastors, men of sin. Their judgment is obvious, and you can see the sword dangling above their head already. Others may appear faithful for a very long time, only for the truth to come out later. These are often the most painful scenarios. Others, I think, will fall somewhere in between. While still others, and this is important, still others, often overlooked, may seem unspectacular in their ministry, only in the end to turn out to have been incredibly faithful and useful in the kingdom. Now, let's be clear. Paul is not saying that we should be inactive, that we can't do anything, that we just have to wait for Christ's return. No, we're to give our appropriate honor right now to those who are faithful and publicly rebuke and remove those who are unfaithful. He's called Timothy to action all through this section. But here at the end of the section, 
on the elders, Paul wants to remind Timothy that despite all our best efforts, and we must make our best efforts, yet still honor or shame will come out in God's time. For many elders and pastors, that comes at the end of their life. For our brother, Carol Young, we were able with great joy to say that his good works were conspicuous. He lived a long life and he served in one place. And so it was fairly easy, far more easy than normal to judge even before that final day of judgment. But in every case, but in every case, the final evaluation of a church officer is not made here on earth. For Jesus says, nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. In words reminiscent of these verses, John in the book of Revelation writes, blessed are those who die in the Lord. But then John adds, for their deeds follow them. When Timothy has done everything, when he has carefully ordained men, when he has openly rebuked the wicked ones and honored the good ones, even after all that, he must remember that no one is approved. No one is approved because they seem approved. Only time and fire, the fire of judgment, will reveal the whole truth. For those here in our congregation who have been harmed by unfaithful men, know for certain that although some evil deeds can remain hidden for a time, though some will slip through the nets of human justice, nothing is hid from the eyes of fire that Christ the risen Lord has. For those who are faithful, for those who are faithful, even in small things, faithful as elders, deacons, parents, grandparents, Sunday school teachers, whatever God has called you to, even those little things, those who are faithful, do not consider yourself to have arrived. Rather, press on as Paul did. Desire above all else to hear the words which no other voice can say but Jesus. Well done. Thou good and faithful servant, enter now into the joy of thy Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it is our greatest desire that at the time of our death, when we come into your presence or Christ returns, to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Help us now to turn all of our attention all of our prayers to that end, that we might be faithful unto Christ and that he might be glorified in our strength and in our weakness. We pray especially, Father, this morning for the elders of the church and for her pastors, not just here, but around the world. May they be found faithful, remove those who are false, strengthen those who are weak and suffering and ill and honor those who are faithful. Do these things now, Father, and ultimately at the judgment, for we pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.